my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central and uh, grateful to be with you this morning, excited to open up God's Word together. Uh, we are concluding this week our summer sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount entitled The Good Life. Uh, next week we'll be transitioning into a six-week sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, uh, but this week we will I'll be wrapping up our Good Life Sermon series. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. For those of you who have your Bibles, the, the text is also in the bulletin and on the screen behind me. As is our custom, I want to invite you to stand, uh, if you are able, for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and then verses 16 through 18. This is God's Word. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. The prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. God, we ask that you would speak to us now through your word. Uh, that you would communicate through me to each of us, to your people that we might hear and be transformed as we encounter you, the living God. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So as we come to the end of our study on the sermon on the Mount, I want to begin by reminding all of us what we've been learning this summer. This sermon exists as Jesus' invitation to us, to his disciples, to pursue, pursue an even greater righteousness, to pursue a righteousness that exceeds both that of the world as well as that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite of the day. And his primary reason for why we should pursue this 
greater righteousness is that to embody this righteousness, to live in this way, Jesus claims is the good life. That blessed, truly happy are they who live this way. And yet now, as we come to chapter 6, Jesus appears to throw a wrench in the whole discussion, almost as if, as if he had forgotten to tell us before that now he is announcing there is great danger for those who pursue this kind of righteousness. And it's that danger that I'd like to look at with you this morning. Look again, starting in verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Jesus begins by encouraging us to be very careful in our pursuit of this even greater righteousness. But, but what is it exactly that we need to be careful of? I think we need to parse this sentence carefully as to not miss the point. You see, there's no innate danger in practicing righteousness. This, this whole sermon, in fact, is a guide for just that, a textbook on how we as followers of Christ are to practice our righteousness, how we are to live the good life. However, Jesus clarifies that the danger arises when we practice our righteousness for the wrong reasons. When our practicing of righteousness is done for the purpose of being seen by others. And it's this kind of righteousness that we want to examine this morning and hopefully begin to root out in our lives. This morning we're going to look at, at three steps for how to begin to avoid this type of righteousness. First, we need to identify what it looks like. Secondly, we need to identify why we pursue it. And then lastly, we need to identify the strength that we need to avoid it. What does this kind of righteousness look like, why we pursue it, and where is the strength to avoid it? So let's begin. What does it look like to practice righteousness in this way for the purpose of being seen by others? Here in chapter 6, Jesus gives us three vivid pictures of this sort of living. The first centers around giving, the second praying, and the last fasting. Now let's look at these pictures one at a time. Jesus begins verse 2 by painting a picture of a charitable person, a generous giver, a person who on the outside appears to have a deep concern for the poor, who motivated by that concern sacrificially gives to meet the needs of the less fortunate. And yet there's a catch to this giving, maybe a laughable catch at that. You see, in preparation to give, this person hires a trumpeter, and he instructs this trumpeter to go into the middle of the town square and, and to blow his horn for all to hear. Why does he do that? Well, he wants to make sure that nobody misses uh, this incredible act that he is about to perform. He wants all to see. The second picture, starting in verse 5, is that of a religious person a person who is adamant about prayer. We might even call this person a, today a prayer warrior. And yet there's something a little fishy about this person's praying. You see, you can't help but notice that this person's prayer always seems to occur in the most visible of places. And not only that, this person is really loud. And so it's almost impossible to walk through the street or through the synagogue and not hear this person praying 
at the top of their lungs. And you want to believe that their, their heart is in the right place, but there's something about the way that they're praying that makes you feel like their desire is more for you to hear than for God. The last picture in verse 16 is that of a most religious person, one who has committed himself to a very lengthy fast. And it's hard not to admire one such as this, one who is willing to inflict such great suffering on themselves for the sake of piety. But once again, you, you, you kind of can't help but notice something is a little off. This person seems so intent to look extra disheveled all the time, making it impossible not to notice and feel sorry for them because they haven't had food in such a long time. So what's the point? What's Jesus getting at? Why does he give us these three pictures? Is, is he trying to show us how to evaluate the righteousness of others so that we can determine if it is in fact genuine or not? And I want to caution you, that's, a, that's absolutely not what Jesus is doing here. Because although it is easy to see in these three extreme examples, the truth is it's, it's pretty much impossible for us to know what's going on in the hearts of those around us. And it's really not a great idea to try to figure it out. So this is clearly not for us to help diagnose the people around us, but clearly it's for us. Jesus wants to use these example, examples to help us evaluate our own hearts. And what Jesus is desperate for us to see here is that our motives really matter. Throughout this whole sermon, 48 verses have been instruction of what to do. And yet here, finally, in chapter 6, Jesus kind of slams on the brakes. He grabs us by the shoulders. He looks us in the eye and makes sure that we realize it's not just what we do, but why we do it that really matters. It matters so much that Jesus says when our motives are off, when our motivation for our giving, our praying, our fasting is to be seen, verse 1, we will have no reward from our Father who is in heaven. Now, I want to make sure you understand this and that this, this really lands. Jesus is saying that our actions can be spot on, that our behavior can be exemplary, and yet if our motives are off, that God will be utterly displeased with our behavior. He's saying that we can be doing all the right things, all the spiritual things, and yet be completely repugnant before God because our hearts are not right. How scary is that to think about? How scary is it to think about that, that sin can infiltrate the very highest and holiest of acts, giving to the poor, praying and fasting? gives us much reason to beware. Now, maybe you've never hired a trumpeter to announce your giving before or posted up on a street corner to do your morning prayer or strutted around downtown Durham looking like a hot mess on day six of your fast. And you may be thinking, I don't know if this really applies to me. But I want to argue this morning that each and every one of us has sought to who has sought to practice righteousness has struggled with this very thing, has struggled with practicing righteousness to be seen by others. And for me, I've found these questions. I've got three diagnostic questions that I ask myself, and, and I found them helpful as I seek to diagnose my own heart, my own motives. The first question that I want to encourage you to ask of yourself is, 
does my public display of affection for God exceed my private display of affection for him? See, the point here is to ask whether or not your private worship, your time with God that is not seen by others, in fact mirrors your public worship in terms of the time spent, the energy, the excitement. And I know I, I confess this is often very convicting for me. Second question is, do I find it less satisfying when my kindness, my, my service goes unnoticed? Are you ever compelled to, to love or serve in a certain way, but you end up a little bit bummed on the, on the other side because nobody noticed what you did? Lastly, and, and, and maybe more broadly, the question to ask is, do I love the perception of godliness more than godliness itself? And this is obviously very hard to diagnose in your own heart, but one of the ways that we can see this when this is evident is if your godliness, if your righteousness is ever called into question, does it undo you? <laughs> Are you undone? And if so, you might need to examine whether you love that perception more than the reality of that godliness. I think if we're honest, the answer to all three of these questions reveal that all of us struggle with practicing our righteousness before others to be seen by others. But why do we do that? Brings me to my second point here. Why do we, even as Christians, practice our righteousness to be seen by others rather than to be seen by God and to please Him? And in order to come to an answer to that question, I want to encourage us now to look at a biblical concept, the biblical concept of boasting that is certainly alluded to here in Matthew 6, but is also made more explicit in other parts of the scripture. So but what is this biblical concept of boasting? We see, we hear this time and time again. Th this idea is rooted in warfare. Uh, the ritual boast was something that was performed by a military leader before his army, before battle. Uh, an example of this is in Exodus chapter 15. The, the context is that God's people have been set free from slavery in Egypt, and yet the Egyptians have changed their minds, and they're, they're pursuing God's people to recapture them and re-enslave them. And, and then there's this boast that the Egyptians make as they're, as they're preparing to go into battle. And this is what they say. They say, we will pursue we will overtake, we will draw our sword and destroy them. You see, and, and as you might can imagine, warfare in this time was pretty ruthless. And so the military leaders, they needed some sort of way to motivate these young men to charge into likely death. And what they discovered is that a ritual boast is probably the most effective way to do that. That's what we see here in Exodus 15. This, this leader is declaring to his army, says, our arms are strong enough, our, sh our swords are sharp enough. How can we not win this battle? And the men respond, ah, and they charge into battle. And most of them die. We see this kind of boasting all over the place. We see it in literature and locker rooms and, of course, in movies my favorite, my favorite example is from Braveheart. You know, William Wallace says to, I'm not going to do the accent, but he says to, I'm sorry, he says to his men, he says, I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You have come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What would you do with that freedom? Will you fight? 
fight and you may die. Run and you will live at least a while and dying in your beds many years from now. Would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that one for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Ah, they charge. They win that battle. What in the world do these ritual boasts have to do with practicing righteousness before others? See, the whole point of the boast is to instill confidence to convince someone that they have what it takes, that they are worthy enough, valuable enough, good enough. And, you, and the reason that the boast is so necessary, because the truth is, all of us are constantly asking those questions, not in terms of a, of a military battle, but in terms of life, amen. We are asking the question of ourselves, do I have what it takes? Am I worthy enough? Am I valuable enough? Am I good enough? And it's our human nature to respond to those questions with boasting. We're going to boast in something, something that will convince us that we are, in fact, enough. This is is what the prophet Jeremiah talks about in chapter 9. He says, the wise and scholarly man, he boasts in his wisdom. The politically connected man, he boasts in his power. The rich man boasts in his riches. We're boasting in something, but why? Well, because life is a battlefield. There's so much opposition that we face each and every day. Enemies, both literal and figurative, are all around us. And so we need some sort of boost, some sort of boost of courage so that we can simply make it through the day. Therefore, we have to boast in something. And this is why we are so prone to practice our righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Because we're boasting in their approval of us. And as Christians, what better way to garner approval than through public displays of righteousness? Then I'll be enough. Then they'll see me as worthy, as valuable, as good enough. Because deep down, each and every one of us wakes up every day starving for the applause of others, longing to hear someone say that we are enough. Is this not what social media and the the self-esteem movement is all about You know, we log on each day and we reiterate our our ritual battle cries, declaring to the world, I'm beautiful, I'm successful, I'm powerful, I'm being true to myself. And then everyone says, yay! And then we charge through the day, hopefully with enough courage to make it. It's clear to see why we do it. Because our thirst for approval seems to be insatiable. But how do we stop it? How do we stop pursuing this approval from man? Brings us to our third and final point. We need strength. We need power to avoid living this way, through, to avoid practicing our righteousness to be seen. And I want to quickly clarify here, the goal is not that we would stop living for the approval of others entirely because that's impossible on this side of heaven. The truth is our motives will always be mixed. I confess that I stand before you right now with some motivation to please God and some motivation to please you. And that will always be true until I go to be with the Lord or until Christ comes back. But the hope, however, is that we will move the needle more and more that our motives will progressively be less 
pointed towards the approval of man and more towards the approval of God. And in order to do that, in order to move the needle, Jesus gives us two truths. Two truths that when we believe them, they will empower us to avoid practicing our righteousness in order to be seen by others. The first truth that Jesus gives us is that the approval of man is in fact wholly unsatisfying. Look again with me at the text. In all three of these examples that Jesus gives, he, he finishes by saying this phrase. He says, they have received their reward. And this phrase, they, they have their reward, is used in accounting. It's, it's, it's used to notate a settled, account, a settled account, that the debts have been paid. It's finished. It's closed. And the point that Jesus is making here is that when we live this way, we will be surprised at how unsatisfying it is. When we practice our righteousness before others, we will expect and long for it to fill us up. We're, we're looking for a, a big reward, but we're going to instead be left with this kind of longing, this aching for more. And the reason why this is, I think, is twofold. Why is it that it never fully satisfies when we live this way? The first is that the crowd is fickle. I think we know this to be true, but... You know, they might ooh and ah for a moment, but then 10 seconds later, they're, they're liking somebody else's post who's, who's doing it a little bit better. You see, it's, it's literally impossible to maintain the consistent roar of, of applause that we so desperately, desperately want. And so the reward, even when it's received, it's never enough. But the second reason it doesn't satisfy is because and forgive me if this is offensive to you, but we're just not that great. Yes, we see greatness around us, but we all know the truth of our own hearts. And we all know how often we fail. And so when the crowd roars, deep down we know that if they really knew, if they really who knew, knew who we were, they wouldn't roar like that. That's step one. We need to recognize and truly believe that the approval of man isn't as satisfying as we'd hoped. The second truth that Jesus gives us is that we need to believe and embrace that the approval of God is, in fact, infinitely satisfying. See, many people think that this is the solution to our never-ending thirst for approval is that we must become a stoic, that we need to root out all of the desires for approval in us and become one who is fully content whether we are loathed or praised. But that's actually not at all what Jesus is calling us to here. In fact, I would argue that Jesus is actually calling us to an even greater desire for approval than we already have. But how can that be? You see, when we look at texts like Romans chapter 1 and 2 and, and certainly others, what we will see is that human beings, that we were created with a knowledge of and a desire for God. You may have heard it said this way before, that, that each of us has a, a God-shaped vacuum in our hearts. It's a cheesy way to say it, but the, the truth is accurate. All of humanity was created by God for the purpose of serving Him. And this is why, whether we realize it or not, our deepest longing in life is to hear God say these words, Well done, good and faithful servant. And the reason why we so desperately want to hear it is because that is the affirmation of, the confirmation of us living out this purpose for which we were created. 
God created us to live for that thunderous applause. Don't miss this. God created us to live for the roar of the crowd. The problem exists not in our desire for approval. It exists in where we are looking for that approval. God is inviting us to look to him. This is what the prophet Jeremiah and the apostle Paul say to us. They urge us not to stop boasting, but rather when we boast, to boast in the Lord. And the good news for you and for me is that boasting is infinitely satisfying. Why? Well, because if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, when you became a Christian, you became as one who is in Christ. And understanding what that means is profoundly important. What that means is that from that time forward, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your flaws, but he sees you as one who is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He sees you clothed in all of righteous of Christ's righteous deeds. He sees you as beautiful, as glorious, without spot or blemish. And as a result, he gives you that thunderous applause that you are so desperately searching for. Listen to how C.S. Lewis says it. He says, It is written that we shall stand before him. The promise of the glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that we shall please God. It seems impossible, a weight of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. It means good rapport with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. Lewis is, is, is so right. We spend all our lives knocking on a door, begging for someone to affirm us, love us, tell me I'm okay work in all our relationships so that we can somehow steal the approval of others. And yet in the gospel, the door on which we have been banging and with no avail, it opens finally, it opens to us at last. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when God looks at you, he sees the beautiful righteousness of Christ? Because the world says you can't cut it. You're not good enough, you fail. They'll never give you what you're looking for. But as we just sang, our God is tearing down every lie. He's coming after you with the truth. He is declaring over you, well done, my son, well done, my daughter. Do you hear his applause over you? Because when you hear it, you will experience the satisfaction that comes from boasting in him. And there you will find the strength to avoid boasting in others. If you listened carefully to the words of Lewis, you'll notice that there was a future tense to much of what he said. And that's because on some level we do experience God's approval right now in the moment. But at the same time, we won't experience it in, its, it in its fullness until we go to be with God in paradise. And it's in light of that I want to conclude with one final passage of Scripture. This is a text that speaks about what is to come. In Revelation um, chapter 3, I want to start in verse 21, and then we're going to look at chapter 4. But the context here is that Jesus is painting a picture for the Apostle 
John of the rewards that are promised for those who believe in him. And, it, and the text says, verse 21, the one who conquers, and he's saying, meaning to the one who in the midst of all the opposition that the world has to offer chooses to follow me anyway, to that one I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You see, church, the promise for you and for me and for all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is that one day we will be invited to sit with Jesus on his throne. Not because of how great we are, but rather, as Revelation 5 says, because the Lamb of God was slain on our behalf. Because of his shed blood, we get to sit with him on his throne. And so I want to close by reading Revelation chapter 4. This is a picture of of what it's going to be like to sit on that throne. I realize it's a lot of text that's going to be on the screen behind me, but I want you to hear it and allow it to sink in. This is Revelation 4. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne there was a rainbow that had, had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which were the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, the fourth like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. I don't know about you, but I want to sit on that throne. I want to sit on that throne. Church, the seat has been paid for. It's promised and it's guaranteed for you and for me. How awesome will that day be when we are invited to join Jesus on that throne? Jesus' desire for you is not to become a stoic and and no longer desire the approval of others, but rather he wants you to live for approval more than anything in the world, for his approval. He wants you to be uplifted by his approval over you right now and to dream about the approval that is to come for us when we sit with him on that throne. It's that approval, it's that thunderous applause that will empower you to practice your righteousness, not practice your righteousness, not to be seen by others, but instead in secret where our Heavenly Father sees and He 
rewards us. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that it's so hard not to live for the approval of others. God, you created us to desire that approval, that thunderous applause, and yet we fail to come to you to receive that approval. And in spite of the fact that you've offered it to us and you've sent your son to the cross so that we could have it, we constantly look other places. Father, I pray that today and and often we would hear your approval over us, that we would hear you say and believe it, well done, good and faithful servant. And that we would be so filled up by your approval of us that we wouldn't need or long to go look for it anywhere else. God, I make that true of myself and each person in this room more and more each day. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.